In Matthew 16, Jesus asks his disciples, he says, who do men say that I am? And it's, it's the most important question. I, th I think the most important question in life. Who do you believe Jesus Christ to be? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So that's who the disciples were hearing the whispers. Who is this guy? Is this John the Baptist come back from the dead? Or has Elijah been resurrected and is now Jesus? So, so, so the different things that they were surmising, who is this man? So who do people today say that Jesus is? Did a little research on this. A Barna survey, it came out six, seven years ago. 92% of Americans believe that Jesus was a real person. In fact, the older you are, the oldest generation, the World War II generation, it was, it was, the percentage was 62% of them believed he was a real person. Oh, excuse me, 56 believe he is God. Excuse me, I, I back up. 92 believe he's a real person. 56 believe he's a God, with the oldest generation the most believing that and the younger generation the least believing that. So an average, though, half of America actually believe Jesus is God. There's endless books written by, about him. In fact, as of 1999, 23 years ago, the Library of Congress had 17,239 books about Jesus. And that's 22 years, 23 years ago. There's thousands more by now that the Library of Congress has cataloged. Arguably, Jesus is the most popular person in human history. In the history of movies, over 100 actors have played Jesus in movies. I had no clue there was that many movies about Jesus. Other world views, other world religions. Islam, Jesus, known as Isa, is considered to be a messenger of God, messenger of Allah. The Quran mentions Jesus 25 times. In fact, it mentions Jesus' name more often than it mentions Muhammad's name. Which most of us, I didn't know that. He was a messenger of God. He was a prophet of God, according to the Quran. But he wasn't the son of God who died for our sins. There was a time, I remember when I first became a Christian, there was this group of people called the Ascended Masters. All these people who became spiritual and got so high up in their spirituality, they ascended to God. And Jesus was simply one of the ascended masters. The Baha'i faith has a similar belief system where Jesus, Jesus was a manifestation of God, one of many manifestations of God, who has come here simply to be an example of what it means to live a good life. But he's not the savior of the world, according to them. We can go on. And this isn't to knock other churches. But there are people who have taken the biblical Jesus, instead of making Jesus match their religious system, taken the biblical Jesus and twisted it a little. Um, and, and so Jehovah's Witnesses do this. Jesus is not equal to God the Father. He's a lesser God. He's a created God. Mormons do something similar. Again, this isn't to mock these religions. It's to ask the question, who is Jesus? Who gets to define who he is? The interesting thing about that, every religious group that demotes Jesus from his full deity or his full humanity also weakens his work on the cross. Everyone that demotes Jesus also adds to the gospel, you must do works to be saved. We'll see that today as we start the book of Colossians. Less exciting is there are people out there that say Jesus was simply a great teacher. And... Um, 
And it was the early church who actually promoted him to become God. Well, Peter turns to his disciples and says, who do you say that I am? Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Today what we're going to do in light of the fact that Simon knew the identity of Jesus, Simon Peter did, because God revealed it to him. Well, God also had it written down for us in probably the primary book that lays out the identity of Christ and his person, who he is, and what he came to do is the book of Colossians. And so that's what we're going to start today. Um, and the theme that I put up here, if you can see, if you can read that, go back, go back to the slide, Janet. The supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. The supremacy, who he is, he is supreme over all. The sufficiency, he has done all that is needed for us to be saved. We don't have to add to it. That's the two themes of Colossians. So as we jump into this, I want to give you some background information. This is the exciting stuff, background information. So stay awake. So what's important to know about the city of Coloss? Sometimes Colossae, different pronunciations, Colossae. Well, this little town was on the Lycus River in western Turkey, about 100 miles east of Ephesus. Most of us know the book of Ephesians. And the town of Ephesus um, was a major port. And then there was lots of roads that went through the whole area east of Ephesus that ultimately they came into Coloss, excuse me, came into Ephesus from all these towns. Um, the towns of Laodicea, Heropolis, these are towns you would know from the book of Revelation, at least Laodicea, one of the seven churches. So Coloss is in the general area of western Turkey that the apostle John writes letters to in the book of Revelation. It was destroyed by an earthquake in 61 and 62, and evidence would suggest they never rebuilt it. So Paul wrote this prior to that destruction. Paul had actually never visited the town. He'd never been there. It's very clear from the first chapter that in the second chapter where Paul says, many of you have never even seen my face. And, and he says, I've heard, I hear about your faith because of Epaphras who preached the gospel to them. And this Epaphras is actually a prisoner with Paul in jail when Paul writes this letter. So Paul has gotten all the information on what's going on in this town and is now writing to these people to, to let them know what's correct about the teaching of Jesus Christ. Paul had spent three years in Ephesus where many of the people in, in the Lycus Valley, including the town of Coloss, would have traveled to Ephesus for business where they had been exposed to Paul. In fact, it's interesting, Paul never visited this town, but you go to chapter 4 and there must be 15 different people he names say hello to. He knew a lot of the people because he probably met them in Ephesus, but he'd never been to the town itself. And this letter shows Paul's pastoral heart as the apostle to the Gentiles. Though he didn't plant the church there. He, he's not the one who went and actually established it. Epaphras was. His calling from God to be the apostle to the Gentiles is, has caused him to have great concern for all Christians, including the Christians in Coloss. So let's look at why Paul wrote this letter. Someone has come into the believing community and brought a modified gospel about who Jesus is. 
This is what air is. Air, air regularly, seldom do people come in to our churches, to our believing communities, and tell you the exact opposite of what we believe. And you should listen to them. Because if someone comes in here and tells the exact opposite of what we believe, what would you do? A little more enthusiasm. <laughs> you wouldn't listen, would you? You go, this is ridiculous. That's no way. That's not what this church represents. That's not what my sa- who my Savior is. That's not what the gospel is. But usually what happens is they take the identity of Christ and his work on the cross and they twist it a little. They, they distort it a little. And it appears someone has come into the city of Coloss and done that. And that person is probably still there as Paul is writing this. Identifying or demoting Jesus' identity and diminishing the efficacy of his work on the cross. If you demote his identity, that he's not truly fully God, then his sacrifice on the cross didn't fully save you. We're going to see that clearly in a moment from Paul's own words. But look at these three passages, they'll be on the screen, where Paul is talking about someone who's come in. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. See, he's warning them, make sure no one misleads you in this way. Well, Paul could be talking hypothetically, just someone might come in sometime. But later on he says, therefore let no one pass judgment on you, in verse 16. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or new moon or a Sabbath. Well, who is this no one? Then verse 18 of chapter 2 says this. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Now there it's very clear this is a real person who has come into the community and brought false teachings about who Jesus is and what Jesus did for us on the cross and is promoting certain things. It talks about the vision of angels or the worship of angels. It's not that this person is worshiping angels. Because that's me. If someone came in here and said, let's worship the angel Gabriel together, we would say, you're out of here. But they said, hey, I've had an experience where I've entered in an ecstasy, in a vision. I've entered in with the angels of heaven to worship God. And you should join me in that. That's what happens with our cult leaders. They have a personal experience of something that you don't get. So follow them because you, you want to be like that. That's what's going on here. And so Paul is correcting this. And, and here's a summary of what is called the Colossian heresy. And that is looking at it because Paul doesn't specifically say what this guy is teaching falsely. What Paul does is he gives you the correct teaching. So from knowing the correct teaching, you could surmise what the false teaching is. Does that make sense? So here's some of the aspects of it. Asceticism. Asceticism is a, a mistreatment of the body so you can be more spiritual. This has been going on for all of Christian history. So Martin Luther did this when he was a monk. He would climb on his hands and knees up, up the step to the church. Dozens and dozens, not hundreds of steps, be bleeding on his knees so that he could suffer enough for God to love him. People take whips and beat themselves, beat their body, or they, 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 they starve themselves. This is asceticism. Well, I'll mistreat my body so I can be closer to God. Scripture doesn't tell us to do that. There is a thing called fasting where you, you, you deny your body for a time. But it's not a mistreatment of your body so you can be more spiritual. There was aspects of Jewish legalism here where it says in chapter 2 that why do you focus on festivals and new moons and Sabbaths? These are a shadow of things to come. 
So the person was coming in and saying, oh, you need to keep this festival. You need to keep the new moon celebration. You need to make sure you keep the Sabbath, which, by the way, isn't Sunday. When is the Sabbath? It's, it's Saturday. So the person was trying to add these rules of legalism. The hyper-spirituality, the mysticism of the worship with angels. And those are always marks of, of false movements. A, 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 you need to enter into an experience with me to really be complete. Whenever someone wants you to enter into an experience that no one else has, but you can have it, run from that. And Paul describes these as according to human tradition instead of according to the traditions that he handed down regarding Christ. We'll look at that carefully in chapter 2. Now, nothing in the letter suggests that the Colossians fell for this guy's lie. Paul has all wonderful things to say about the Colossians' faith. But here's the point. Whenever we think it's okay, we're safe, and we've arrived, that's when Satan strikes. So Paul is keeping them on the alert. You guys are doing good. You're doing good. We'll see that in a minute in the first few verses. You're doing good. But beware. Watch out for these kind of people. And it appears one of them is actually in your midst. So don't let that person influence you. What's important here is to understand this. We're going to look in the first several weeks of this sermon series about the doctrines of Christ. Now, sometimes when you hear the word doctrine or theology, some of you go, oh, boring. And by the way, it can be. It can be just raw information that seems to have no relationship to life. But what I want to tell you is every one of you have a very well-developed theological belief system. It comes with being human. The world feeds it to you. Here's the question. Is your theological beliefs, are your doctrinal beliefs biblical and not from the traditions of the world? So what's important is that we teach sound theology, sound doctrine from Scripture that comes from Scripture. It renews our minds because what happens, everything I believe affects how I live. This is what's so important. When I make decisions during the day, whether they're planned decisions or simply responses to things happening, my belief system's informing how I respond and how I make decisions. And often that belief system is, is below the conscious level. What we're going to do in Colossians is try and believe, bring above the conscious level, what do I believe about Jesus Christ and his relationship to the Father and the Spirit? What do I believe about the cross? What do I believe about forgiveness? What do I believe about being a disciple of Jesus today and following him? You already have beliefs about that. Let's see what the Bible says to inform those if, if it's, it's true what we, you and I have or do we need to change what you and I have? Because every one of my beliefs affects how I live my day all day long. It's so important to grasp that. Every belief I have informs my decision making all day long. False teachings will misdirect our life. And correct teachings will steer us to the right way of life and to the right person, Jesus Christ. So, what's the main point of Colossians? As the title says, the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. It's, um, do you remember when I said to you last week, I asked the question, is it possible you and I have simply added Jesus to our lives? If you're visiting today, ask what I said last week as we were looking at the last psalm we did for the summer series. Is it possible we simply added Jesus to our life as opposed to making him my life? Well, the making him my life comes from the book of Colossians. Paul says that in chapter 3. 
And we'll get there in a minute. We'll get there in a minute. So here, here is Christ is supreme. This tells us, and this, by the way, this is now supposed to not just be theology. This, this needs to settle into you as we, as we start today and go for the next several months. Um, the Savior I worship, the Savior who was eternally God but became human to die on the cross for me, this is who he is. And I should want to know him deeper and in more detail so that my worship is enhanced. But Colossians, we're going to learn Christ is supreme over all of creation. He created everything. Everything that exists, Jesus Christ created. He is supreme over it all. He submits to none of it, but it all submits to him. He is supreme over the spiritual realm, we're going to learn, and even the demonic realm. We're going to see this beautiful passage in chapter 2 where through the cross, when the demonic realm had Jesus crucified, that actually betrayed them. He used it against them, and it got victory over them, and then we live in that victory. The demonic realm no longer has any authority in our lives because of the cross. They were trying to accomplish one thing. Jesus went along with it, was his plan, so that he has supremacy over them too. Jesus is supreme in his church. He is the head. He is the one we follow. He is the one we worship. And this is because... His supremacy is because he's fully God, we're going to see. Fully God. Not partially God, not half a God, not a little God. He is fully God. The second aspect of my theme is Christ's work is sufficient to save you. There is no need to add Jesus. There's no need to add to Jesus' work on the cross. It's not Jesus plus something. So we have to be very careful as we go through Colossians because often what this is says, oh, it's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's the title of the book out there. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And I agree with the premise. But sometimes that's taken too far to say, therefore, there's no commands for you to live by. Well, guess what? There's as many commands in the New Testament as there are in the Old Testament. Telling us how to live our life, to love our neighbor, to, be, to honor our husband and wife, to, to not steal from each other, tell the truth. All these things are commands given to us. But you don't, you don't do them to add to Jesus' work. You don't do them to get him to accept you. Because he fully accepts you, because God the Father sent his son to die for us and raised him again. I was going to say rose him again, but raised him again. And we put our faith in Jesus all the righteousness of Christ is given to me. I am fully accepted in the beloved. And so now God wants me to live out what that looks like every day. So I don't keep the rules so God loves me more or keep the rules so I stay a Christian. Because I'm born again, because I have the spirit of God in me, because Christ dwells in me, we're going to see in Colossians, I want to live a life that reflects who I am. And the New Testament defines what that looks like. Because the world has given us the opposite all day, every day. And it's so easy to just succumb to what the world thinks is the right way and forget what God says is the right way. So that's, that's why we have all that. Jesus is sufficient for all my salvation. This is the key verse now. I want to look at this for a moment. Um, Colossians 2 we're going to look at verse 8 through 10. I already read verse 8 to you. I want to read it again so you get the context here. 
See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. We'll talk about that when we get to chapter 2. And not according to Christ. So don't listen to what the world's teaching you. But what, as Paul taught these people and other people, what, what do you know is true about Christ? And then he defines what that is in verse 9. For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is super important that we grasp Jesus Christ for eternity is fully God. Along with the Father, Son, and Spirit, I mean the, the, the Trinity. So in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He became human. Now look at verse 10. For you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. That's a very literal translation. I want you to see the NIV to see that the point here. See the NIV in the next verse. So let's go to verse 9, Janet, on the NIV. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So keep the word fullness there. Because Jesus is fully God. Now look at verse 10. In Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Here's the simplicity of it. Because Jesus is fully God, you, if you trust in Jesus, are fully saved. That's the connection. If we deny the supremacy of Christ, then his death is not sufficient. I must add to it. Every organization that I know of that demotes Jesus from the fullness of God realizes his death on the cross was not sufficient. And you have to add something to his work to be saved. And, and every one of these also say this. You never know if you've added enough. So work harder. It's a great way to control people. It really is. So Colossians is about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And we'll see that in the very first chapter. It's just it's amazing how he just rattles off all the way Christ is supreme. Then when we get to chapter 2, we're going to see the sufficiency of Christ in our salvation. And then the rest of the book is simply how do we live this out in community. So what is our approach going to be in this series? If you know me, I, I, don't, I don't want to tease anybody with, with ADD, so I'll just tease me. I'm easily distracted. I get real excited about starting things. And two-thirds of the way through, I just want to quit. Because I'm real excited about the next thing. And I start thinking about what's next and, and not focusing on what I'm supposed to be finishing. It's been um, the bane of my existence my whole 48 years of life. <laughs> See, I don't want to deal with the second third of my life, so only 48 years. But what we're going to do in this book, because sometimes, like when we were in Romans, about 11 or 12, I wanted to be done and move on. When we were in John, I wanted to be done and move on. Well, I want to spend some time in Colossians. And um, I want to slow down. I just don't want to bore you with, with details that are maybe you don't care about. But I want us to slow down and pull out of this who is Christ and what has he done for us. Now how do I live my life in light of it. So we'll, we'll take this past Christmas this time. And normally I was going to finish by Christmas. As I outlined it, I go, I'll have to rush too much. So I really want you with me reading Colossians time and time and time and time again. 
And so I'm encouraging you that several times this week to read Colossians 1. Read the whole book if that's what you want to do. I mean, it, it can't hurt. It can only help. But whatever your Bible reading plan is, if you don't have one, let's start with Colossians. If you have one, add Colossians 1 several times this week. And we'll be in Colossians 1 for about three weeks, maybe longer. And, and if you read it over and over and over again, you may not have it memorized word for word, but you'll understand the flow of thought so well. It'll be stuck in you for a long time, maybe forever. So do that with me. And then I want to put out a video midweek that I'll send out to the normal channels we did. Many, many, maybe not. I have about 130 or 40 people on an email list I used to send these out to. If you didn't get them before and you want them, then just get a visitor's card, put your email address, and drop it in the offering box. They add me to the list. Once a week, I'm going to put out a video that just gets us thinking some more about what we learned today. I'll add a video on Wednesday about this. Does that make sense? Just trying to motivate us to open his word, to think through who is Christ, and why is that important. All right. Now let's walk through the first eight verses. Colossians 1, 1 through 8. I'm going to read all of it to you, then we'll come back and walk through it a little slower. God guide us in this, please. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Coloss. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, that is the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. It is also, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. There's Paul's typical introduction to his letters. He identifies who he is. In this case, he adds Timothy to it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Sometimes he adds Timothy. Sometimes he adds Silas. Sometimes it's just his name alone. But after that, he never really includes his other disciples. It's always I, Paul, I, Paul, I, Paul. So, so obviously Timothy was known to these people. So he adds them to it so they understand that there's a pastoral relationship here from both from Paul and Timothy. Um, but let, let's drop down to verse 3. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Paul regularly opens his letters telling them, we pray for you all the time. And I tell you, Paul here, Ephesians, we see that in almost all his letters, his prayer life, I wonder how much time he would spend praying for the different churches. Paul had a deep heart that when these people came to faith, they followed Christ. And several times he says, we are so worried about you, we thought maybe you had fallen away. And, and so his prayers are that God, keep these people, sustain them, protect them. It's interesting to read Paul's prayers. There's a whole book out there called Spiritual Reformation written by Donald Carson on all the prayers of Paul. And what's interesting is Paul never prays for people to get a better job. Paul never prays for them to get a raise. Paul, and there's, there's no recorded prayer of Paul praying for physical healing. 
All those things are worth praying for, by the way. That's not the emphasis of Paul's prayers. The emphasis of Paul's prayer is on spiritual growth. Because the more we mature into Christ-likeness, the more I can handle the job I hate, the more I can learn to live on the money I make. And if God's not going to heal my sicknesses and diseases, I know that his grace is sufficient, is what the words he told Paul when Paul asked to be healed. So spiritual growth and transformation is the heart of Paul in everything he did and every letter he wrote. He says this, though, I'm going to read verse 4 again, Janet, so you get 4 up there. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. I've highlighted in mine different color code. I should have done the slide. Heard two things. What are the two things Paul heard of? Because Paul, Paul didn't go there. He's never been there, but he's heard some things. What did he hear? Faith in Christ. So this is the idea that you're trusting in Jesus. You turn from your pagan ways. You've turned from the Roman emperor worship or the, or the worship of the Greek gods, which is more likely here than Roman gods, Greek gods. Um, and you've trusted in Christ. You've turned from idolatry to the living God. Fantastic. We've heard about this. What's the second thing they heard of? Which we cannot separate. To love God is to love his people. And today... Today, I've seen book titles that say, I love Jesus, but not his followers. And unfortunately, there's reason not to love us sometimes because we're not always Christ-like. There's many people that says, well, I, 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 I worship God, but I don't need the church. And I want to tell you, that's not an option. Paul says this. Peter says this. John says this in 1 John. John there, there, John is in your face. John says this, if you say you love your brother, but when he comes to your door and you don't help him, you don't love him and you're a liar and the truth is not in you. So he, he takes it right down to a practical thing, that if you love your brother, you will care about them and take care of them. And if you won't do that, then don't tell me you love your brother because you don't. And, and so... Paul here, and just in his opening comments of why we thank God for you, reminds them and us. Faith in Christ Jesus opens this wide door that shows me you're my family. And I became a Christian in 1979, and no other family member was a Christian. And I have five brothers and sisters. Um, three of them have come to faith. Two, not so much. My mother came to faith. My stepfather never did. And my real father never did um, that I know of. So I was the first one. And as deeply as I loved my biological family and still do, something happened in me that gave me this incredible love and affinity for you. The, the idea of blood is thicker than water. I'm, I'm deeply devoted to my blood family, truly. But there's something about you being my family members that goes deep, deep in me. And um, to where sometimes I have greater affinity for you than my own blood family. And, and this is being recorded and they may watch it, so I'm in deep trouble. But it's the truth. When we grasp who we are in Christ, 
we should never lose our love for our parents and our uncles and aunts and brothers and sisters ever. But there needs to be understanding that we have now been united together. Paul says in Ephesians that Christ came, reconciled you and me to one another, and then reconciled us as a group to the Father. We put so much emphasis, that's in chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, if you want to look it up, of Ephesians. We put so much emphasis on, oh, I'm reconciled, and Kim is reconciled, and Carrie's reconciled. Yes, individually we're reconciled. But the emphasis of Ephesians 2 is he reconciled people together. Then took us to the Father and said, here are my people, Father. And so we have to get a mindset that's different of our individualism back to this corporate idea that we need to be known for our faith in Christ Jesus, that that drives us. And we need to be known for the love we have for each other. And th those of you maybe with a different background, when it says you, the love you have for all the saints, saints is Paul's words for Christian. It's not Paul's words for the super, super spiritual people. That comes out of church history, not from the scripture. Verse 5. So the love you have for all the saints because of, and here's why we have this love for the saints and faith in Jesus, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth of the gospel. That hope in heaven, it's not, it's not that there's, there's really cool stuff in heaven waiting for you when you get there. What's our hope in heaven that's waiting for us? According to Colossians, what's our hope in heaven? Anybody know? It's Jesus. This idea of hope is used two more times in verse 26 and 27. Listen to this. The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And what is this mystery? Christ in you. The hope of glory. See, glory is that time when Christ returns and makes all things right. That is our hope. And Jesus now is in heaven, waiting to come. Now I'm going to read to you, there's no slides on this. I'm going to read to you Colossians 3, 1. Um, first of all, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life, here it is, your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is in your, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So who we are is identified with Jesus Christ in heaven right now. But he's going to come someday. So he is my life according to this passage. When Christ who is your life appears. So we need to grasp that now. He is my life now. And while much of my life sometimes can be in turmoil, can be in pain, or in great joy and happiness in my circumstances, all you've got to remember, it's not that Jesus adds something to my life. Jesus is my life. And when we grasp that, a fullness comes from waking up every day realizing today I live out the life of Christ. Because I died. Christ is my life. We're going to expand on all this. Verse 6, back to Colossians 1.6. This gospel which came to you has indeed in the whole world, as in the whole world, is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, who is a faithful minister on Christ on your behalf, um, whom, who has made known to us your love in the Spirit. 
Christianity is the largest religion in the world. Um, last I saw over 2 billion people identify as Christians. And the next is Islam. And it's one point something billion. But let's, let's go to, back up to Jesus is in Galilee talking to his 12 disciples. And he says, now, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now you go and make disciples of all nations. He's saying this in backwoods Galilee to 12 people who were not high society people, didn't have any education, but they were faithful. You guys, you 12 go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, that's the New American Standard, and lo, I love that word, I don't, I don't know what it means, but... And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's a promise of Jesus, not just to be by my side or even be in me, but to empower me and guide me to success in the commission to make disciples of all nations. Those 12 men eventually went out. Paul was added, 12 plus 1. And they changed the Roman Empire in one generation to where by the time Paul dies in Rome, there's a healthy Christian community there. By the end of the first century, Christianity is in England at the far reaches of the empire. And it has grown and grown, multiplying and bearing fruit to today, it is all over the world. But there are still some major pockets where Christ is not known. It's called the 1040 window. The 1040 window covers much of Asia from the Near East, which would be over by Jerusalem, all the way through India and into Indonesia. Um, and Islam is the primary religion there. And often Christianity is outlawed. Um, so our disciples, we're disciples. Go and make the nation, disciples of some nations. Those you can't get to, don't worry about All nations. The commission is still on us. These 12 started it. It's still on us. And we need to realize if Jesus is my life, and I've really come to grasp who he is, this amazing, all-powerful, all-holy, all-knowing God who loved us so much, he became human, was mercilessly treated and beaten and killed on a cross, so that you and I could receive life. Doesn't always drive me every day, but it, it needs to. And it needs to drive you too, to take it to our neighbor, to take it to the next town, to the next state, the next country. I'm off script completely. In my conclusion, I was saying this. Do you sometimes wake up wondering your identity and purpose? So remember what I just said. Did you add Jesus to your life or is he your life? If he is your life, then your purpose is clear. So let me read this. I wrote this out. I want to read it to you so I, I don't summarize it. We can only live the life of Christ if we truly understand who he is, 
in what he has done for us. A modified or truncated Jesus is not worth living for. Colossians will drive home into our hearts that Christ is supreme over all and deserves our full devotion and adoration. Colossians will also drive deep into our hearts and minds that Christ's work on the cross is abundantly more than sufficient to save us and empower us to live out the purpose he has for us. We don't need to spend anxious energy trying to gain his approval. Rather, knowing his supremacy and sufficiency, we live that Christ-empowered life each and every day because he has fully supplied everything we need for life and godliness. There's my summary of Colossians that we're going to spend the next several months on. Often introductory sermons can be, like I said, just informational and boring. What I hope today is that you are here in some, for some reason in your journey with God because maybe Christ is brand new to you or intriguing to you. You haven't committed yourself to him yet. Or you're young in your faith and you're very excited about walking with Jesus. Or maybe you've been doing this for 43 years like I have and sometimes you just kind of get the mundane times of life take you out. We've all been there if you've been walking with Jesus that long. My goal is for us to reinvigorate the person of Jesus Christ in our hearts and our minds. And I don't like to separate those too far because the mind informs the heart. So don't be afraid in this series of jumping in and thinking deep about who is Jesus because that greatly affects when I stand here and raise my hands to worship him. The more I understand about who he is, the deeper my devotion. So why don't you stand up with me? And we'll do just that. Father, I look forward to this book of Colossians. Lord, thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for working through the Apostle Paul as he's in jail. And his heart is about people outside who may be getting distorted and following Jesus. Thank you that he wrote this and you preserved it for us, Father. Um, just keep opening our eyes, showing us day to day what we need to turn over to him as our Savior and how we can live a life of great purpose that puts a smile on your face, Father. We want to please you because of all you have done to make us yours. What an incredible truth. So, Lord, now as we sing to you, I, I hope it is pleasing in your eyes. In Christ's name, because of him, we sing to you now.